This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. The war in Ukraine is creating massive suffering for people who live there. And while many of us see this in the headlines, what we don't as often have a chance to learn about or study is the history of the people who live there and of other countries throughout Eastern Europe that were a part of the Soviet Union and that had a very different experience after World War II than their neighbors in Western European countries who instead had stronger transatlantic ties. 14 years ago, even before Russia invaded Crimea, Russia invaded two parts of Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Molly McHugh was an advisor to the president of Georgia for about four years after this happened. And now Molly's a writer and lecturer on the interstate rivalries Russia has with its neighbors, which are sometimes less about brute force than about asymmetric forms of conflict like cyber, information, and economic means. We talked to Molly about the USSR's legacy in Ukraine in relation to the war, but also in relation to other Eastern European countries, including Moldova, Georgia, and the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which are members of NATO and which share borders with Russia and have Russian-speaking populations, at least a percentage, as well as many painful generational memories of life before the 1990s when they gained their independence. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us, our live schedule, and more past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Monday featuring Michael Smirkanish of CNN. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. I was wondering if you could just start off by telling us about your background and the positions you had advising governments in the former Soviet republics and what that was like a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, like everyone, kind of got sucked into the wars in the early aughts, but by training and education was a sort of former Soviet space person. And right after the war in Georgia in 2008, was kind of recruited to go to a firm that was doing some work there. So ended up working as an advisor with the Georgian government. This was when it was still under President Saakashvili in the period after the Russian invasion in 2008. I came in in 2009 and worked there until the transition to the new government in 2013. Also worked in Moldova as an advisor to the former prime minister and one of the parties that was in the governing coalition then in 2014-2015, and then worked in the Baltic states doing a sort of independent media project working with Russian language media in the Baltic states that was not the Russian state media stuff. <laughs> so all of the uh, all of the Russian language outlets that were trying to push back against the the Kremlin narrative. So I've worked broadly across the region and, of course, in between all of those things, have done some projects helping in Ukraine, which is what we're all sort of focused on now. So have kind of floated around doing a bunch of different things in a bunch of different capacities, but try to stay engaged in the region as much as possible because Washington is always just too far away from, uh, from what's actually going on out there. Anybody over the age of 30 experienced... Russian rule in Ukraine. Could you tell us a little bit about what Soviet rule was like over there and maybe the memories that some of these people are carrying and how that's shaping their fight today? It is true, sort of the under 30s in Ukraine, you know, have not lived during the occupied period. 
Uh, they have a different understanding of what that felt like and, and looked like in many respects. But for everyone in Ukraine, for everyone in the Baltic states, for everyone in Poland, etc., it's like, you know your family story. And if not your parents, definitely your grandparents have these stories of Soviet oppression, of sort of the Soviet-era oppression, particularly Stalinist oppression, which could have included deportations, uh, executions, uh, imprisonment. In Ukraine, particularly, even before you get to the World War II era stuff, which is more of the gulags and, and the kind of framework of the purges that we know a little bit more about in Western historical understanding. In the early 30s in Ukraine, essentially this was the period when Stalin was already thinking through demographic engineering at a large scale in the Soviet Union, kind of how do you move populations around to control them, basically. But there were just too many Ukrainians. It's a really big country. It's a huge ethnic group, obviously. And since they couldn't really move them, they decided just to starve them until they complied with the kinds of policy changes, quote-unquote, that they wanted in Ukraine to achieve the internal control that they wanted over Ukraine, which was resisting the occupation that Russia was trying to impose. So... In Ukrainian history, it's the period is referred to as Holodomor, um, which is death by hunger. And if you look at this period of history, which really isn't something that, that most people in the West study, there's a little bit more awareness about it following intense Ukrainian sort of external education campaigns over the past decade, usually through Ukrainian diaspora groups um, living in the United States, Canada, and Europe. But, you know, millions and millions of Ukrainians died in this period because of an enforced policy of starvation under Stalin. And while Ukraine was still the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, producing huge quantities of uh, food for the rest of the people, they were starving to death. And if you read Timothy Snyder, of course, is, is one of the best historians of this period, and he has this extremely haunting way of discussing the Holodomor, which is essentially, if you survived, you had to make the decision to take food away from someone else. So either you took food from your children, or you decided to eat the dead, or all of these other choices that you had to have made to survive, which obviously had a really dark, formative historical perspective on how Ukraine views its relationship with Russia, how they view their history under Soviet rule, and why when Putin decides to write a 7,000-word essay on the historical unity of the Slavic peoples, the Ukrainians are really wondering what the hell he thinks he's talking about. Because, of course, this whole period is excerpted from what he's talking about. But the, the texture of the history in the 20th century between Ukraine and Russia is one of mass death and psychological terror. And every Ukrainian learns that from their family and from their family stories. And it may not be something we understand in great detail, but that was the history that they were coming into this era with. And everything since 2014 has done little to remove a lot of that perspective rather than enhance it. I wanted to ask you about the Soviet period, uh, the period under this repression that you've been describing. During that time, uh, to what extent did Ukraine and the other uh, nations that are now republics have a national identity? 
How strong was their sense of national consciousness during that period? It really differs between places. I think if you're if you're talking about the various stands, the five Soviet republics that are in Central Asia, those were a little different because they were, you know, a little less formed in historical identity and ethnic identity prior to the Soviet period when a lot of development occurred. Not to say there weren't distinct concepts of identity within groups in those places, but a little bit different in terms of its historical trajectory. In certainly in Ukraine and in the Baltic states, these were very distinct historical groups uh, from their own historical narrative, from their own identity and culture. In the Baltic states, uh, it's also very much based on language, uh, the same in Ukraine and how they define what traditional Ukrainian identity had looked like. So there really was uh, an independent sense of who they were distinct from sort of a Russian language, um, a Russian language group, uh, from a Russian ethnic identity group. And that was a lot of what uh, the purges, uh, the deportations, things like Holodomor were about. It was about when there was a strong sense of identity that Soviet authorities viewed as providing a buffer against the kinds of internal control they needed to bring people into alignment with their policies. That's when they tried to break these groups apart through various means of of mass terror, as the KGB described it at the time, the NKVD, obviously. But in so it, like in the Baltic states, there were tons of deportations people sent from uh, obviously way over here in, in the western frontier of the Soviet Union, all the way across to gulags in the far east in Siberia. Um, but these weren't the, in many cases, weren't just the political dissidents or the people who were viewed as troublemakers. They would deport their families because that's how they controlled them, is we have your family, your family is being held prisoner, and if you ever want them to come back, you're going to stop supporting the resistance uh, or the concept of resistance in your countries. So there was this this constant interplay, and it, you know, in the the Baltics were reincorporated into the Soviet Union in the, the beginning of World War II, and Ukraine had been uh, sort of incorporated earlier in the twenties. But there was this constant interplay between how the Soviet Union and Soviet authorities were looking to either manipulate and control or subvert a national identity groups that were inconvenient to how they were trying to rule, basically. Now, Lithuania this month became the envy of the EU when it announced it had completely stopped importing gas from Russia. It was able to pull the plug on Russian energy thanks to its investment in a terminal to import liquefied natural gas, or LNG, with the fitting name Independence. Every month, tanked ships filled with liquefied natural gas head to Lithuania via the Baltic Sea. One full LNG carrier is all it takes to supply the country's 2.8 million people with gas for half a month. Before the terminal, Lithuania and the Baltic states have been paying the highest price in uh, whole Europe, uh, approximately up to 40% more, just because we did not have an alternative. After the independence started operations in the region, the natural gas prices became just the same as in the Western Europe. The terminal was called Independence because it makes Lithuania completely independent of Russian gas, which until recently was delivered via pipelines. Filming in the 
terminal and the port is prohibited due to fears of Russian sabotage. Certain EU member states have been hesitant to ban Russian oil or gas, but not the Baltic states. At least they've uh, been the leaders. They've uh, banned Russian gas imports. How similar is the opposition towards Russia from the Baltic states in fervor, in strength, in uh, unity to that of Ukraine? Is, is it similar? I think it really is, more than anything, kind of a clarity of perspective that we, certainly the United States far away here over the ocean, uh, have much less direct historical uh, experience with in, in almost every aspect. Yes, there are plenty of former Soviet emigres here who have brought their stories and history with them, and hopefully we, we can learn from that. But for many Americans, this is a very far away truth, right? And I think if you're an Estonian, a Lithuanian, a Latvian, a Ukrainian, the people who are, for the most part, in charge of these countries now were the generation that was part of the freedom movements uh, toward the end of the Soviet Union. So the concept of fighting for independence is sort of who they were and how they were raised. And their family stories are those stories of uh, gulags and deportations and grandparents that met rebuilding the rail lines in Siberia and all of these kinds of things. So there is a similarity in how they're viewing the current um, the current political environment of how these decisions are being made about Ukraine and about Russia and about what we're going to do. Um, the Baltic states have been from you know from from back in 2008, but especially from 2014 onward, leaders in explaining why we must sacrifice some of our comforts and relationship with Russia to contain the types of ambitions that Putin has explained very clearly that he has. So when everybody's sort of moaning and hedging around implementing more sanctions because it will have an impact on their economies, this obviously has a much more direct impact on the economies of small nations that border Russia that have, still have significant uh, economic uh, activity with Russia at various times. The Baltic states have paid a big price for being leaders on sanctions over the past eight years. And now, for example, um, you know, Lithuania and Estonia, Estonia particularly, from the early days of sort of seeing what was coming in this latest round of uh, accelerated fighting, have sent forward their own supplies of weapons, of munitions, the things that they need if Russia comes across the border toward them. For them, the war is in Ukraine, and Ukraine gets the stuff. So they've sent their own things, pretty much everything at this point, forward at a scale sort of per capita, per GDP, that that grossly outweighs what any other Western nation has been willing to provide to Ukraine. So I think we need to look at that and understand why, right? Like, why are they willing to do this at a level of economic and political sacrifice uh, in their countries that I think is really hard for us to unravel and fathom? And it's because they view this threat as very real, because they know what that history looks like. Um, and when they're looking at Ukraine and they see the types of not just the bombings, which are obviously horrific, but the targeting of civilian populations, the kind of implementation of psychological terror that they have seen from their own history, the rumors of the beginning of mass deportations from Mariupol and other cities um, into Russia, this is the kind of thing that that pulls at all those historical memories that they have been wanting us to learn and warning us about for some time. And I think this time they hope that we actually listen and follow the example that they're trying to give through the sort of quiet and stoic leadership, you know, we expect from the Baltic states. But 
they really are leaders in this and they have taught us a lot. We have learned a lot from them, but not enough yet. And I hope that we step up. What about popular sentiment in countries like Belarus or countries as far flung from Eastern Europe as Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan? uh, Do we find that the way that people today think about Russia changes quite a bit? that uh, there's a lot of variety in the way that the former Soviet republics think about Russia. As part of the latest military buildup leading up to the war in Ukraine, the newest phase of the war in Ukraine was kind of the final and de facto annexation of Belarus by Russia. And that's notable because, granted, Lukashenko has been the president this whole post-Soviet time, but One of the things that allowed him to keep power as long as he did was his long-term effort to, uh, and not heralding him as a Democrat that he is not, but, but to keep Belarus independent from Russia, to keep it separate, to keep Russian military presence out of the country. Um, this was a piece of how he kept control and popularity in Belarus for a long time, because Belarusians very much view themselves as not Russians. And so this idea, again, this idea of like the unity of the Slavic peoples is not something that they are also comfortable with when Moscow is talking about it. And I think the other examples of this, like even places that generally have a more favorable view of relations with Moscow as Belarus has had, uh, and still, you know, in the public mind until the last two years had, you know, Kazakhstan, uh, which has a large ethnic Russian population, there's a lot of Russian Kazakhs, has had positive relations with Moscow for most of the post-Soviet period. They're very integrated in terms of energy and other projects that are happening in many respects. There was this weird thing recently where there was kind of uh, an internal power struggle that kind of blew up. The Russians decided to intervene. I'm grossly simplifying all of the details of this for the sake of time. But Russians sent forces to intervene, had to withdraw those pretty quickly because obviously they were much more focused on this war in Ukraine they were about to start. But in the context of this, you actually see pieces of the struggling groups in Kazakhstan, like the two power groups that were fighting amongst themselves, have kind of had to come back together in some aspects because they want the Russians out too. It's the same across the region, this idea that these places, either for the sake of their own control of wealth, their own control of power, if you're talking about the elite, but when you're looking at the people, their own sense of themselves and who they are as ethnic groups and nations or where they sit in history in the world, even places that have a friendly view of, uh, of Russia and Russians and Moscow don't want to be reoccupied. And that's, I think, very clear in how a lot of these places have acted. Uh, if you're looking at Azerbaijan and its relations with Moscow in the last few years, Armenia, in Georgia, for example, now you have a, you know, a slow slide of a government led by a Russian-made oligarch back toward this kind of halfway position between the West and Russia. And people have been in the streets decrying this position that the Georgian government is not supporting Ukraine, is not supporting sanctions, is not engaged on uh, on the right side in the war. And so it's a really interesting dynamic right now where I feel like everybody is tired of the attempts from Putin's Russia to regain the foothold in the region that Putin seems to want. Um, and I actually think there's a lot of energy kind of coalescing around this like anti-occupation sentiment. Um, in a lot of these countries who are just tired. They're so tired of the existential threat of Russians coming back. 
Let me ask you about Belarus first, because you described it as kind of a de facto annexation. And what I have been looking for some clarity about mm-hmm. since February 24th is the role that Belarus are actually playing in the full invasion of Ukraine. There's been various mixed reports trying to describe the extent of their actual involvement. First, we were seeing that Belarusian troops were actually in Ukraine. Then we were hearing that they weren't, but they were certainly using uh, Belarusian territory as a launching pad to invade northern Ukraine. There seems to be a little bit of confusion about the exact extent of Lukashenko's direct involvement in this phase of mm-hmm. of the war. Can you clarify any of that for us? Uh, how would you kind of assess uh, the level of involvement from Belarus? Yeah, I mean, look, it's like a $40,000 question right now. Everybody would love to have more clear information on what is going on. From what I have seen, from what I have discussed with you know friends in the region, people in Ukraine, etc., I think some element that looks like this is true. I mean, everybody has watched these increasingly sweaty appearances of Lukashenko with Putin, where Putin is clearly trying to pressure him into fully joining the invasion. And he's like trying to figure out any other place to be than in that laser sight at the moment. I think that, yes, there is stuff being staged out of Belarus. Uh, yes, they have some some assets based there. You know, the, the Russian military assets are there. I do think there has been some sabotage activity that has made that less appealing, particularly in the rail lines. I think those stories are real, that like elements of uh, of the railways were uh, sabotaged or, or, or disrupted so that they cannot be used to move military-grade material right now um, in parts of Belarus. I think it's important to understand that like the the security elements of Belarus, including the military, and they still have what they call the KGB. These groups are also uh, have never been enthusiastic about integration with their Russian counterparts who very much view them as like hillbilly cousins who aren't as smart and glorious and handsome as them. So I think you actually see these like really interesting dynamics of like Belarusian military officers who are essentially like no fucking way we're not enjoying this invasion that is not our thing and excuse my language but uh <laughs> just checking just checking um but i think i there there are some really interesting dynamics that seem to be real in what we are seeing play out which is there are these tensions in the security services and in the military leadership um, that are not not pro Moscow on this. Like they do not view this as a war they signed up for. They do not want to be engaged directly in the fighting. The Ukrainians have obviously been paying a ton of attention to whether or not there are actual Belarusian uh, troops engaged in any internal to Ukraine invasions or or uh, access. And so far, it seems like no one's been able to document that very clearly. So I think they're not really engaged for right now. There are some Belarusian opposition-aligned folk who are coming together as a uh, loose unit within the foreign fighters in Ukraine that I think the opposition is going to try to leverage as a a, a good PR point for themselves, but that's great. Um, But I don't so far see actual, like, Belarusian military forces or units engaged in the fighting in Ukraine. They may not be able to resist that dynamic forever, but for now, it has been a big reason, uh, or at least a reason, uh, in why the plan to assault Kiev was so failed, uh, was that they didn't really have 
well, they never had enough forces to do it, uh, even in, in their best planning. But without any Belarusian support, it kind of lessened that even more so. Uh, and it's just been a totally failed effort. So, Molly, prior to Moscow's mission seemingly changing from taking over Ukraine, this large scale invasion, now they're back towards the east. We heard a lot of voices saying that this could creep into Moldova. I'm wondering, do you think that uh, if uh, Putin starts to see some military success, that he could then um, set his eyes on Moldova? And what would that look like? Would it look similar to Ukraine? Are, Are they preparing? Have they been prepared? As Moldova, a country that I actually have great fondness for, despite it being incredibly depressing in in many respects. So I say this with love, but uh, Moldova is not Ukraine. Obviously, it's much smaller. It has no real things. Within like their 45-day mobilization window, maybe it's actually 30 days, but in an extremely long period of time during which they could actually call up their trained forces, they can muster no more than 5,000 soldiers to defend their territory. So like, basically, because there's already Russian forces based in Transnistria, the occupied region of uh, Moldova that's sort of basically between Ukraine and Mold- and Moldova, there's already Russian forces based there. If Russia wanted to, quote, take over Moldova, all they would have to do is move aside the roadblocks at the five checkpoints between the things and drive across the river, and that would pretty much be it. And, I mean, there's just nothing, there's really nothing Moldova could do to stop that. I think uh, given how slow the initial response in Ukraine was from the West. I don't really suspect anybody would really muster to to counter that uh, effort should Russia decide to do it. It's just sort of, there's no reason for them. I think the logic of Russia seizing officially Moldovan territory isn't really there if they haven't been able to complete the seizure of the southern parts of Ukraine. And since they're kind of stuck, you know, the Black Sea coast, since they're kind of stuck on the on the stuff closer to Crimea and haven't been able to have any success toward Odessa, I just don't see that as something that that's necessary. But should they ever should they ever seize the entirety of the Ukrainian Black Sea coast, they would just sort of add Moldova the next day because they can. But I think, you know, it's just Moldova doesn't have real security. It uh, is very poor. It has a a better government now than it has had in some time, but it is entirely dependent upon Western support for getting almost anything done. And it's really overwhelmed by refugees right now because, you know, several hundred thousand Ukrainians have either moved through Moldova to other places or into Moldova uh, kind of hoping, you know, there's a there's a a check a border crossing from Moldova from Ukraine into Moldova that's you know 15 miles, not even 15 miles, like 15 kilometers from Odessa. So uh, a lot of Ukrainians have gone into Moldova, hoping the war won't be that long, hoping that they can soon return home. It's an inexpensive country to live in compared to other parts of Europe. But the country is totally overwhelmed. It has no capacity to deal with this additional population. At this point, it doesn't even have a functional airport because nobody's flying into Chisinau when there's no air defense (laughs) for the entire country of any kind. And Russia is doing stuff right next door. Uh, So anybody, all these European officials who've been visiting Moldova fly into Romania and then drive in. It's a really 
crap dynamic for Moldova to manage right now. I'm not, they're getting support to, to help with some of the refugee issues, but I think they feel very much like an add on to everybody's thinking on Ukraine uh, and that no one really has time for them right now, which is partially true. But I think that uh, it's sort of a, if Russia decided to do this thing, it could do it and it wouldn't really even be a real thing. But I don't see the, the desire to do that right now because it would just be like more things to do that they don't have time for. This was the scene early on August the 8th, 2008, as Georgian rockets pounded the breakaway region of South Ossetia. It was the opening of a devastating five-day war between Russia and Georgia, with each side blaming the other for setting it off. Since the early 1990s, Georgia had maintained an uneasy truce with two separatist regions, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which held de facto independence with Russian military support. But tensions were rising in 2008 when Russia sent additional forces to Abkhazia. Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili saw it as a move to seize the enclave. We think what we has been done in legal terms uh, recently amounts to uh, annexation. And what is being done right now as we speak uh, amounts to aggressive acts. After months of escalation and skirmishes, the situation spiralled into all-out war. Tbilisi claimed Russian forces moved on South Ossetia before Georgian forces began an assault aimed at retaking the region. Molly, as you were describing Moldova's situation, it reminded me of that other country that you mentioned before, that you also have great experience advising heads of government at the highest level, and that's the Republic of Georgia. It's a country that I visited about five years ago. I went to Tbilisi mm-hmm. just for tourism purposes, not for anything more than that. It's a good choice in yeah. many respects. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. I was just there for, you know, kind of a long weekend. But even in that time, just from talking to people and looking around the city and looking around some of the neighboring areas, um, I noticed how strong the anti-Russian or at least anti-Moscow, anti-Kremlin, mm-hmm. uh, to be a little bit more precise, sentiment is. And to be fair, uh, of course, for the reasons that we were saying, they don't have the security guarantees. They have a vulnerable situation. Uh, they're on the border uh, with uh, with Russia, and uh, part of their territory is being occupied. They have economic uh, concerns. There's so many reasons why there are limits on what Georgia can really do. So uh, we have an unsustainable situation here where the public is asking for more and more and more action. How much can the government really do? Uh, what would action really look like from Georgia? What's the limits of what might be possible? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to compare because I think, uh, you know, Georgia now versus Saakashvili days Georgia is obviously a very different thing. Georgia's a really interesting case study because there was this intense period between the Rose Revolution and about 10 years later, uh, the, the, the nine years that the post-Rose Revolution government led by President Saakashvili was in charge that was extremely focused on Georgia's Western integration And then you have the current government, which is led by the Georgian Dream Party, which is led by a sort of Russian-made oligarch, uh, Bedzina Ivanishvili, um, who, uh, you know, understood when he built this party that the Georgian people are very pro-Western, that uh, integration into Europe is extremely popular, that NATO membership is extremely popular. Um, these are things that the Georgian people had voted on in referendums and uh, made clear in the orientation of the nation that they wanted to achieve. 
Um, so the the current governing party of uh, of Georgia, you know, won elections on the same stuff. It was pro Western. We will integrate with Europe. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice if we had a less antagonistic relationship with Moscow? And like, yeah, sure. You know, after years of existential threat um, following the invasion in 2008 um, of Georgia by Russia, uh, a lot of people felt this was an appealing message of, yeah, it would be really nice to have a less antagonistic mes- uh, relationship with Moscow, um, uh, which is was, was sort of how they wrapped up this whole package um, uh, to gain popularity. Um, but the the Russian aspect of the current ruling party in Georgia, uh, the Russian, particularly the aligned with Russian money aspect uh, of the ruling oligarch, uh, has uh, made them, they've made a lot of bad, strategically weak decisions for Georgia, including uh, allowing Gazprom uh, back into the Georgian energy market, which now I think the Dutch or the Danes just had to intervene to help Georgia build more green energy stuff because this government stupidly let Russian uh, energy interests back into their market, which were not there before, because to be clear, Georgia gets most of its, uh, like 95% of its gas from Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan transits uh, gas across Georgia to Turkey. Uh, So it would be stupid to buy Russian gas, really. And yet they found reasons to bring that back in. So there's been all these decisions that this more Russian money-aligned current ruling party in Georgia have made to allow Russian influence back into Georgia um, that have weakened the position of uh, the sort of security position of the country while nominally, you know, Georgia is still working toward NATO, Georgia is still working toward the EU. Um, But it's been uh, an interesting case study in how you can actually weaken a country while pretending to be pro-Western. And it's left Georgia in a really bad position. So now you have uh, a country that is Pro, a pro-Western population that wants to be in NATO that ha- feels a lot of kinship to Ukraine uh, and their their post-Soviet history and trajectories are very similar in many respects. The Rose Revolution was in 2003. The Orange Revolution in Ukraine was in 2004. They have been sort of next to each other in the pursuit of their European futures for a long time. Uh, and the Georgian government is just checked out completely, has nothing to say about Ukraine, has openly said, we're not going to help them. We have interests with Russia that are more important to us. Um, and that has been a really troubling dynamic for the Georgian population um, that has not been traditionally uh, you know, oppositional to the current government to grapple with in this period. Um, and it'll be an interesting thing to see what happens in the coming couple of years in Georgia. Inside of NATO, we've got as you've been describing this complete difference in worldview between the countries that have this experience of Soviet and Russian oppression, uh, the Baltic states that were incorporated legally into the USSR, and then the other countries that were part of what was called the Eastern Bloc. And then we've got these countries in the West that have a completely different experience of history, where they were often the aggressors in conflicts. And we've seen in the run-up and the aftermath of the full invasion of Ukraine, how much divergence there is in these worldviews. Yep. And we've been hearing calls from figures like Emmanuel Macron uh, to create a more cohesive European EU-centered uh, defense mechanism. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you think such a thing is really possible? Do you think that uh, these broad array of countries that have such different views of the world, such different understandings of threats, could really come up with a cohesive defense system uh, that excludes the United States um, that 
could uh, come uh, to the same page and cooperate um, with the same idea of threats. As an American and a big believer in NATO and the transatlantic alliance and how that has given all of us on both sides of the Atlantic here uh, a great security relationship, uh, joint market, you know, all these things that have made us secure and prosperous in the post-World War II era. I'm a big fan of all of those things, and I think we should keep, we should keep them the way they are. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, a piece of this has always been that, you know, the steel in NATO was American. And I think we all know that. Most Europeans admit that. It's why the Estonians and the Lithuanians and the Latvians want American boots as part of the um, forward-deployed battalions, NATO battalions in those countries, because they view the American presence as the thing the Russians care about the most in terms of real security. Um, not that there's not other allies who are super important. The Danes are really important for the Balts, etc. But, um, the American piece of this is really uh, important. And um, while I, I would love the idea of old Europe stepping up, thinking about what territorial defense looks like, doing things like actually having tanks that work, um, actually training for territorial defense, actually planning for mobilization the way that the Balts and the Poles have to do all the time. Um, while I would love to see what looks like more investment in traditional defense and not just selling weapons to other people abroad uh, as a focus of what their defense sectors are doing, um, it's uh, as a thing separate from NATO, it becomes a giant distraction. And um, if you're looking at personnel and manpower in particular, um, uh, countries like Estonia, the smaller countries, um, you just don't have enough staff officers to staff your actual military, do all the NATO things where they have to have people integrated in, do all the other joint super rapid mobilization task force crap where they have people deployed, do all the cyber stuff, the information stuff, and then have a whole other set of European structures that require officer time. Like They just do not have the manpower to do these things. And for me, what I've seen in Europe in the last eight years where there's been this experimentation with things that look like independent European security apparatuses that are separate from NATO, that don't involve the Americans because no one thinks the Americans are actually going to show up anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Like, all of that is a distraction from what we should all be doing, which is reinforcing NATO. And that would be the best thing for all of us is to actually just be serious about our own security commitments under Article 5 within the alliance, um, ensuring that uh, everybody understands what those look like and what those things are, and then redefining aspects of NATO that we've been bad about actually doing the work on in terms of if NATO has an expeditionary capacity, what is that? Um, and let's define that better than the sort of half-assed way it was used for Iraq and Afghanistan um, if NATO has a future as an, as an expeditionary power, so not just territorial defense for NATO, but outside of NATO boundaries, what is that? What are the circumstances in which that's used? In all of these different ways, but I think moving forward as an alliance um, is the best thing for all of us and not creating these parallel structures that sort of pander to everybody's views of, uh, of politics at a given moment. Um, because actually those things are all giant distractions from the work that we all need to be doing for European security, for transatlantic security against Russia and against China. I want to go to Royfield and then we'll go to Nas. Royfield, over to you. Hey, Molly. Uh, thanks for that, Justin. Molly, I was really interested in you talking about Lukashenko 
and specifically mm-hmm. Belarus. Um, when I went to Minsk, for me, it was still a country very much kind of like in the shadow of the great patriotic war before you get mm-hmm. into the center of Minsk. There's this massive Soviet war memorial there, which is well attended and, you know, and it's yep. in great shape. Do you think that maybe us in the West maybe don't quite give Lukashenko the credit that he deserves in terms of he seems to be able to play just about both sides in that very obviously he's an authoritarian. I'm not saying this guy is a yep. great guy by any stretch of the imagination. Yep. But, you know, there was the active union between Belarus and Russia in like 2000. There is even a technical flag for it. But he didn't join the invasion, um, mm-hmm. you know, he manages to somehow keep some semblance of independence with a country which is about, what, 13 million, right next door to a country with a, 140 million. So do, do, you, do you think that maybe we give this guy somewhat of a, a hard time considering he's kept his country just about independent? Yeah, no, I, look, I agree with that assessment. And I think um, I really had to reconsider how I was evaluating Lukashenko in my own head. Again, not as a great Democrat uh, by any means, certainly, um, but who he was and and why he was doing some of the things he was doing. And I will caveat all of this prior to the the most recent uh, election in Belarus uh, and the actions afterward, all of which I think have done uh, have have one hundred percent thrown Lukashenko has like thrown himself completely into the basket of Putin, and he is now a completely controlled entity, and that's his own dumb making. Um, but prior to that, um, look, he had if, if prior to the most recent round of uh, protests in Belarus, um, the the at least nominal opposition victory in. Um, the last election, uh, sort of pulling on all these sentiments of the desire for change in Belarus, um, Lukashenko was not unpopular. And I think that's important to understand that, you know, Belarus was doing pretty well, uh, particularly in the sort of post-2008 period. Um, Belarus had a real good scam as like a thing laundering things into Russia going on that really bolstered their economy and created a lot of additional revenue to kind of spill across the country. Uh, I mean, Belarus, a landlocked nation, the world's largest ex- exporter of salmon because it's re-exporting everything into Russia to evade sanctions, was a pretty good game for them for a long time, right? But I think uh, aside from this latest period, which becomes kind of cartoonish, I think having worked with the Georgians and the Ukrainians, who obviously have a different perspective on um, Belarus, and in that sort of you know 2010 period, um, so before all the more recent stuff... Um, they really encouraged us to look at this differently. Uh, this was the period where it was very um, popular to refer to Lukashenko as the last dictator of Europe. Um, and they really encouraged uh, their their Western partners to look at this differently and to see what Lukashenko had done to keep Belarus independent and to constantly say, you have to keep giving him the open door and the option. It is the only way that he will be able to maintain this uh, sense of independence in the country. Uh, And Lukashenko played a great game, right? Like every few years, he'd sort of show up at the EU and knock on the door and be like, hey, give me an option. Maybe I'll leave. Maybe I'll come out this time. It'll be great. Uh, And he did this cycle over and over again. Um, 
but it did create uh, a dynamic of of independence um, that was very real in its institutional separation in Belarus um, that uh, you don't have in some of the other places, um, and you sort of wouldn't assume would be true. Um, but like the Belarusian KGB, the military, um, the other security services, these were totally separate from Moscow in a way that is extremely important in a post-Soviet context in terms of determining your own independence. Um, and that was a piece of what Lukashenko um, felt was important uh, and that he was focused on. Again, this is not a man who was super interested in, in fair, free and fair elections. And certainly if you were labeled as an oppositionist to him, your life was not going to be super fun. Um, but the independence aspect was one he was really focused on. And I think that understanding why that was so important and why that gave him um, a lot of popularity for 25 years before he kind of blew it um, is really important for us to understand in terms of what comes next for Belarus and how we engage um, different elements in the country going forward. We're going to Nas first, then Yuho. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Molly. My question about the support of Russia to the far right in Europe, we've seen that in France. How dangerous that is. Uh, France is in big mess right now. If the far right win, that they probably would leave the EU and will have a serious ramification in the rest of Europe mm-hmm. and on us. So how far is that and what should we do about it? Yuho, what's, what's your question for us? My question is about Georgia. There are some areas in Georgia that are sort of in the control of some Russia-friendly forces. We have to talk a lot about Donbass and Transnistria as well, but how about these Georgian special areas? Mm-hmm. How do you see them and their future, and what yeah. does Georgia think about them? Both really good questions. So I think in terms of France... You know, what's so fascinating, we were talking about this in my class today, because uh, for part of their final project, my students have to do like a red team exercise of a country uh, from a Russian perspective. And a, a bunch of them are, are super interested in doing something on France right now, because it, it's like in this in this post-Crimea period where there's suddenly more awareness, at least in, in Europe and um, in in the West, broadly speaking, of Russian influence, uh, broadly speaking, of political warfare, of hybrid warfare, et cetera, et cetera, however you want to label those things. We're all so really good at seeing it in other places, and we fucking suck at seeing it in our own countries and how it is targeting our populations and ourselves. And it's so fascinating to watch that um, in France, even after a decade of exposure of Le Pen, her ties to the Kremlin, what has made her who she is, the money that her party has gotten uh, to support all of these activities, how the narratives have amplified uh, Kremlin objectives in France, what that looks like, what that feels like, all the analysis of all of that things, um, people are still like, yeah, but she's talking about the stuff I care about and I'm going to vote for her anyway. And it's like, gah. So it's really fascinating that we are so bad at understanding subversion and how it works on us. Um, If Le Pen wins, it will be a disaster for Europe. I mean, Macron is already kind of a disruptive force within Europe, sometimes for good and sometimes not. Um, And uh, putting an openly anti-system president in France... Uh, when France and Germany play these outsized roles in uh, determining what NATO is doing, determining what the EU is doing, 
um, on political decisions against Russia, against China, against other things. Um, a Le Pen presidency would be uh, super bad. Um, and also all of these kind of lesser countries where there are far-right forces like in Austria, et cetera, um, where you don't really pay that much attention to what they're doing, they would suddenly have a champion on the big table in Europe. And I think that would be um, a terrifying dynamic to, for all of us to have to navigate uh, going forward, especially in the context of this war in Ukraine. Um, in Georgia, the occupied regions of um, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia or Skinvali, depending on which you want to label it as, um, you know, so they're they're very different. Um, South Ossetia is essentially just uh, an up-armored Russian military camp at this point. Um, the GRU pays guys to retire there. So there's like all of these uh, Russian security personnel that kind of uh, inhabit this place that has been completely depopulated of Russians and other ethnic groups in the two waves of ethnic cleansing that happened in the various wars. Um, uh, and there's units, uh, you know, units from, uh, South Ossetia who have gone to Ukraine to fight on the Russian side as part of the show of the unity of the Russian brotherhood. Um, so that's a lot, I mean, it's, it's a mess and, and the situation there is not great. Uh, the Russian forces in these territories are constantly moving for, uh, moving forward the occupation line by a couple meters at a time, um, and with the current Georgian government not really drawing attention to most of those things, uh, it's a really bad security situation. Uh, Abkhazia is different because it's on the Black Sea, it's really close to Sochi, it kind of has that spillover uh, benefit of Sochi being Putin's favorite place. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the Sochi Olympics was kind of staged out of and constructed out of Abkhazia de facto. Um, but, uh, you know, is it, an, is it a real independent place? No, uh, it's completely dependent upon Moscow's uh, budget and, and maintenance, um, and its future as an independent thing doesn't really exist. Um, but reintegrating it back into Georgia would be, uh, at this point, extremely difficult, and it would be a really long-term process. So it's just going to be this kind of gray zone thing of Russian influence on the Black Sea, uh, which is what they care about, the Russians, that is, um, that they have control of this part of the coast. But, it, you know, it's, its future as anything significant is not really that important right now. It's more just that it keeps, it keeps Georgia from being uh, able to join NATO because the territories are occupied uh, and de facto independent. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Molly McHugh, to our audience for their questions, and most of all, to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us, our live schedule, and more past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Monday featuring Michael Smirkanish of CNN. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders. We hope to hear from you soon.